0: Hey everyone and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you and you know I like to give a little preview of what's coming up on the show and so later on for our inbox we have a woman who's wondering if it's okay for her to date someone who she has chemistry with but the guy is not a Christian. And so uh, what does that look like? Is this a good or bad move? Can she wait it out and and see? I'm going to weigh in with some advice for her. And then for our culture segment, Pastor David Mathis is the executive director for Desiring God, and he's going to share about a book he wrote on what it means to be humble. Now, I obviously don't need to know about that, but all the rest of you do, and so I hope you're going to (laughs) listen for that. It's going to be part one of our conversation with him, so stay tuned. Well, here we are for our roundtable, and uh, Producer John and Hannah, I think, both uh, thought it would be fun to do a Boundless Q&A and uh, kind of get your questions. They can be about Boundless. They can be just advice questions. They can be weird questions about us personally. Anything you've been wanting to ask in the past, present, or future of anyone on our team. And we're going to tackle them and we're going to do this in two segments. So we have got this week and next week to hopefully get all your questions in. And so those of you who are here via Listen App, because we're doing this as a Listen App recording. Um, Feel free to raise your hand and ask your question anytime during this segment and then those of you who are listening after the fact uh, you will hopefully hear some of those questions as well as ones that are coming in on social as well so as we kind of get started. Why don't we go ahead and uh, answer a couple of the questions that are already here, um some of the ones that have come through, which I just realized now I'm like sitting here with random papers, and I'm like, "Oh, yeah, I need to get my question list up so um okay, well, let's go ahead and and answer. Oh, first off, um, I, I actually, we got some questions in that I was like, John, I'm just going to have you answer this one. Hannah, you take this one. <laughs> of course, you know, sometimes I weigh in on stuff as well, but I'll answer a question that came in from Esther, and um, I, I think this is a great question, and I'll take a stab at it. Esther asks, how can I love another Christian if I don't like them or like being around them? Okay. Now, unless you are Jesus, this question applies to you because there are people out there that just rub you the wrong way or you have a challenge with or whatever. And so, Esther, this is a great question. Um, I think first off, the, the best tactic that you can put into practice in this kind of situation is to start praying on behalf of this person, praying for this person and praying that God will change your heart towards this person. Now, sometimes you're just like, I don't want to pray for this person, okay? But that's where you do it in faith and you do it trusting that God knows exactly what's up with this person and with your relationship with them. And so starting to pray in that direction is helpful. Secondly, what is helpful is being able to understand that the kindness of Christ and a respectful attitude and a humble love towards a person, a Christian love towards a person does not mean that you are faking stuff or acting like you're this person's best friend that should be very freeing for you so just hang in there with this person be kind to them be respectful of them honor them do not talk behind their back do not be constantly undercutting them to your other friends we don't know why this person is the way they are and quite frankly you're probably messed up too, okay? So le- they're probably writing in about you right now. <laughs> <So> <laughs> let's, just, let's just be honest. I feel like I've been on both sides of this equation. I've been just kind of a weirdo jerk sometimes that people are like, Lisa, I don't really like you. And then I'm the person that's like, well, I don't like you either because you're mean to me or whatever. So just recognize we are all sinners. We are all flawed. We all have our issues. Um, you know, I think of that, uh, what's the, the quote that so many people use? Be kind because everyone's fighting a battle. You don't know what someone's watching. Walking through where what their status is based on what their challenges are. And so uh, hopefully you'll be encouraged in that. Get God on your side. He's going to help you through. So good question, Esther. Um, okay, Hannah, I don't even know where you got some of these um, questions. These are like some wacky ones of just kind of some fun personal stuff that I think would be great for us to answer. And um, in fact, why don't you pick one that you got in and have us answer it?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so for both of you, I'm curious if you could go back in time to any time period in history, what would you pick?
0: Oh, okay. Well, and you'd be ready, too, because you have to answer it. So, John, how about you done go? And
2: done. The first thing that immediately comes to mind would probably have been the 1940s. Mm. Here's Ooh, why, okay. because that would have been tail end of the Great Depression. Yeah. And what's funny is we look back now on World War II history, and we think, wow look at all those different characters that were there look at how america did great but in that time period they didn't know how things were going to turn out Mm -hmm. so i would probably if i had to just pick one it would be that era because so much happened during that time so many people came back and had families shortly after that time as well Mm that would probably be my pick
0: That's pretty good. I would say I'll piggyback on that and say I have often thought that the 50s would be awesome because Mm. I just have this false notion that they were basically perfect. Um, Everything about them. I mean, (laughs) people just walked around in awesome clothing, you know, and just did awesome things and everything just seemed so picture perfect. I just think it would be really cool to be like a sliver, a snapshot, you know, yeah. during that time period of of what that was like. But I often say of people when, when they ask me for a single moment in time and not to Jesus juke this, but I honestly feel like Jesus on the shore of when he meets the disciples and he's like frying fish on the fire post resurrection yes, yes. to just be like, Jesus what was that just all about like what just happened here i think like a singular moment in time and i don't even like fish i would just be there for the conversation um i think that would be fun how about that's you, That's so
1: good, yeah, just to get to see that. Yeah. My answer is very superficial. I um, read The Great Gatsby <laughs> years ago, oh, and yeah. I think mm-hmm. the 20s would be super fun. Yeah. But all of it to me if is If you're like, rich, like yeah, The Great Gatsby. Like glitzy. And and clam blames. bakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> that is pretty awesome. Okay, <laughs> yeah. that's
2: a that's a good one to have. So. Would you go to a lot of the parties in the 1920s like they did in The Great Gatsby?
1: Ooh, I don't know. Because it's like it sounds fun, but then you think personally, morally,
0: eh. I don't know. <laughs> probably not the best move not yeah. the best move. that's great okay um I'm gonna answer this one from Kendra I saw that this came in this is like this is an example that um that there are people listening who have been around like forever okay because Kendra asked does Lisa wear skull rings okay <laughs> both of my team members were like what are you even talking like, about like thought it was a ring. joke yeah like Hannah thought it was a joke So here's the deal. Those of you who have been around Boundless for a long time and around the show know that I used to talk about skulls a lot because I'm kind of a fan of skulls, okay? But here's where I have to clarify because I don't like scary skulls like Halloween skulls or I don't even like real skulls like actual (laughs) anatomy kind of skulls what I like are skulls that are cute and whimsical and have bows on their heads like Hello Kitty kind of skulls okay and yes I do have a skull ring Um, it's actually not a super cute skull in fact it was a boundless fan I think that sent it to me so it's a little bit kind of like gothish skull but i wear that ring you guys um almost every good friday i make a point of just like wow. yeah it's just kind of my golgotha ring and i just wear it to service and then everyone questions my salvation or whatever <laughs> um but yeah i'm kind of in skulls so kendra you have just shown that you've been around boundless for a long time because there is kind of a, a skull thing that i'm into though i have not talked about it a lot recently so just a, a thought there um did not know that about you, Lisa. I know. Well, there are some things probably we shouldn't know. So, <laughs> Okay, I see that we do have a question um, on Facebook that came in from Alex. And Alex says, I am dying to know what songs are at the top of your favorite playlists right now. Oh, so. man.
1: So good.
0: Okay, that's a good question. I need to even think that through. So I'm going to make John and Hannah answer first.
1: Yeah, I'll go for it. There was an album that Citizens released over quarantine. It was like a phone demos album. Like they just Mm -hmm. wanted to get their music out there because everyone was in quarantine. Um, And what is the song called? Oh, it's called Forgive Us. Okay, Mm. It's it's based on the part of the Lord's Prayer um, about forgiveness. And I think it's really sweet. So that's definitely at the top of my playlist right now.
0: That's really good.
2: Cool. I'll have to check that one out. All right. Total Honesty here. My favorite song to listen to is actually Disturbed's cover of The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> okay. Okay. It is amazing. Nice. It wow. has kind of almost this light rock orchestral feel to it. And for whatever reason, whenever I listen to it, it just makes me feel like a creative person. So <laughs> I love that. It is. If you haven't seen it, it, I would definitely go online and look it up because it's, wow, it's so well done.
0: That is very cool. Okay. I will say that one, I'm going to give two short answers here. One is um, I have started downloading a lot of classical music now uh, to my playlists because I used to way be into classical. And there's Mm. like, if you get into classical, that's actually, if you've ever taken a music appreciation course, there's some legit classical that isn't just like. Oh my goodness, News Fest. There's some stuff that's really fun by different composers and different eras and stuff. So I would expand your horizons, give it a chance, uh, give some classical a chance. Otherwise, straight up, and this is because one of my favorite Christian bands is the um, original Newsboys. Like, no offense to the new Newsboys. I love them too. But the original Newsboys with Peter Furler, Peter has mm-hmm. done several solo albums, and he has got a song on his, um, what's it, like on fire, I can't remember what, if it's his first or second solo album, but the, the song is titled Glory to the King, mm-hmm. and it's all about heaven, and it's about getting to heaven, and um, it, it's just amazing. It's like very anthemic, and I just love right. it, and every time wow. it hits my playlist, I crank it way up. That's so good.
2: One more recommendation I would give for a song um, talking about Christian music would be Selah's version of I'd Rather Have Jesus. Was that written by George Beverly Shea? Was that who wrote that song?
0: So the words, okay, thank you, John, for asking me. Like, I know all old music and old people. I'm going to choose to not be offended by that. Yeah. Um, actually, it was—I don't know who wrote the lyrics to it. It's an old, mm-hmm. old poem um, right. that was written as a Christian poem, and either George Bev, you know, George Beverly Shea died at 104 years old, I think it was uh, several years ago. Mm-hmm. He's known for singing it. I can't remember if he put it to music or if someone else did, but but Sale has redone it.
2: They have, and okay. they do some. Im- Incredible worship covers, whether it's old hymns or even some more modern worship songs, they do such a good job.
0: Yeah, they're really they're super great. I love them. So okay, awesome. Um Hannah, how about you throw another question our way that we have?
1: Yeah, for sure. Ooh, what is the scariest natural disaster to you and why? <laughs> like the most intense nightmare vibes. What's okay. the scariest to you? I feel like it's different for every person.
0: It is. And if I'm even thinking through it, like I probably don't even have in my head all the possible natural disasters. The first yeah. one that comes yeah. to mind I've never experienced, and that is a tsunami. I feel like a tsunami, especially standing there and knowing that it's coming in and seeing it come in would be terrifying because I do have another one of my fears, common fears, or I should say um, irrational fears, is being in an enclosed space filling with water. And then I just drown. So the whole idea yeah. of being hit by a crazy wave and then you just drown, that would probably be mine. I've lived through, I mean, I've done, I grew up in California. I've done earthquakes. I've done, you know, whatever. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Lisa, that was actually mine, too. Oh, okay. I feel like because it's so instant, like it's like yeah. a tsunami, it's it's instantly there. Everything's instantly flooded. Right. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, with a flood, it kind of happens over time or I don't know. I've been through tornadoes and those are certainly scary But, yeah, a tsunami, it's just instant. And Mm -hmm. I've also never experienced it, so maybe I'm going crazy in my head about it. Yeah, for sure.
2: (laughs) Mine would probably be tornadoes Mm -hmm. just because I've been close to a few tornadoes before, but by God's grace, wasn't ever really impacted by one. Yeah. But they seem to kind of come out of nowhere, whereas something like a hurricane, Mm. you're hearing about it on the news and you see the swirl on the Weather Channel about where the projected path is. But tornadoes kind of come up out of the blue. So but thankfully here in Colorado Springs, we're close enough to the mountains That we're just west of what's considered tornado alley, so I'm not too concerned about getting hit by one for
1: sure. We did have that snow squall recently, which I didn't even know was a thing bomb (laughs) cyclone. They call those bomb cyclones, oh, really? Yeah, like the the
0: legit crazy ones where we get dumped on, they call them bomb cyclones. So, yeah, there you know. So, (laughs) okay, let's go to a a question from Mackenzie, which I'd love Mm -hmm. to get insight. Mm from, you know, probably John, you okay. could kick this one off and give some insight on this. Tell Mackenzie, she wants to know, how do I thrive in a season of healing and waiting? I think mm. this is a good one that you can weigh in on.
2: Well, thank you for the question, Mackenzie. A couple of things that immediately come to mind is if you're in a season where you feel like maybe you're waiting for a breakthrough to happen or you're waiting to get married or start dating, or if it's a season of healing, maybe a breakup or the loss of a loved one, first thing I would say is don't hide where you're at. Be honest yeah. about the fact that maybe you are experiencing some very real emotional pain right now. I have found that the more we hide, the harder it is for us to truly find healing. So that would be kind of the first tip I would give. Another thing I would also say is be willing to seek out good Christian counseling, because I remember after my mother passed away, that was one of the things that helped so much. There were many times where I was just kind of heaping up all these different things emotionally that I didn't even realize I was carrying in my soul, but I would just unload them in front of a safe Christian counselor, and oh my gosh, the relief that I felt in that— time was just incredible. Yeah. I honestly don't know if I would have healed as well as I have been able to heal if I didn't have a counselor who could guide me through it. Kind of the last thing I would say is really just a promise from scripture that comes from Psalm 34. And it is a beautiful promise that God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So even in the seasons where it feels like you're waiting where you want something to change or you feel like you just wonder, is the sun ever going to shine again? I still have days like that even after my mother passed away. But the thing that gets me through it is knowing God is near and he wants to listen and talk to me whenever. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have the hope that I have. So thank you, Mackenzie, for writing to us. But that, that that would be what I would encourage you with.
0: Yeah, that's really great insight and very helpful. And it just reminds me of, I mean, you know how you get like truth from weird places. I, no joke, this was only several weeks ago. Um, I heard from a personal trainer who actually talked about the difference between um, waiting and passing the time Mm -hmm. and how waiting has that attitude of like expectant hope. Mm -hmm. You can intentionally and actively wait. Passing the time is just like, white knuckling it, just hoping, you know, things you get by and stuff like that. But, but to John's point, the whole idea of like, if you're in a real season of hurt, you know, seek out some help, whether that's professional help, whether that's getting prayer from friends, whether it's talking to a pastor, um, being, you know, reviewing the goodness of God and the promises that he's given us, pouring out complaints to him, as the Psalms also mm-hmm. tell us to do. There are a lot of things that we can do actively in seasons of waiting, which I think are super super great so for
1: sure
0: good thoughts you guys okay um all right i want to go to a question this is going to be um our last question probably from this time around and then you'll have to join us next week for our next batch of questions but this is a question from aaron uh, that came in on facebook aaron asks what is your favorite spot in colorado to visit that's a really great uh A great question. We're going to try not to say like specifically just Colorado Springs because we live here and we love it. But, you know, whatever. So um, any thoughts that you guys have on this?
2: I'm a huge fan of the Broadmoor Hotel.
0: Oh, okay. I
2: love going to walk around and just see all the different Western architecture and paintings that are there. They also have a really nice man-made pond that's right by a golf course. So I don't think you're supposed to walk around the golf course. I'm not (laughs) sure. (laughs) I've only done that at night. But (laughs) it's really, really fun to just go and walk around there. Another place I would recommend.
0: And the Broadmoors in Colorado Springs, by the way. Yes, it is kind of on
2: the south end of town. Mm -hmm. Another place I'd recommend would be Palmer Park. Oh, okay. It's an outdoor park where you get just kind of this – almost panoramic view of the Front Range, and you can see downtown, you can see Pikes Peak, you can almost see monument from up there it's really cool and it's not quite as crowded as garden of the gods garden of the gods is great but yeah i kind of like the fact that palmer park's not as crowded
0: yeah. okay what about um colorado in general because they said in colorado so outside Ooh. of town i know you've done a lot of 14ers yeah. which you might explain what that is too
2: yeah the 14ers are the big mountains that are fourteen thousand feet or more above sea level in mm-hmm. elevation one town I would recommend, it's way on the western side of the state, so it's a good drive to get out there, but Eureka, Colorado mm-hmm. is yes. fantastic. A lot of people refer to it as the Switzerland of Colorado, and there's a reason for that because the mountains there are majestic.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, You kind of took my answer, so I'm going to think of something else, but <laughs> I'll forgive you for that. So Hannah, how about you?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a fun little mountain town um, in the middle of the state, kind of. It's called Salida. Hmm. And mm-hmm. they have a really cute little downtown area, and it's right next to the Arkansas River. A lot of people actually do river rafting mm-hmm. outside of Salida. There's this huge park with an amphitheater right by the river, and a couple summers ago, is that's where I saw Fourth of July fireworks, um, and it was just so fun.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's pretty great. Okay, I'm going to just piggyback quickly on... Um, john's Ure because i'm just going to tell you that if you go to URA, it's a very small town there's box canyon falls there which are definitely a fun waterfall thing to go to um you just literally like stand practically under the falls and then also if they still have it if it's still open go to mouse chocolates because they have it's homemade handmade chocolates right there mm-hmm. and they have a thing i want to call it the garbage cookie. I can't exactly remember what it's called, but it's all the scraps of the chocolate that they make just dumped into cookies. And you never know what you're going to get. It's just crazy chocolate inside a cookie. So that's pretty awesome. The other town I would recommend is Pagosa Springs down in the southern part of the state, largely because it's known for its hot springs. It has a great hot spring uh, series of pools there, as well as great camping along the river. So highly recommend all right. Okay. Good job, you guys, um, with your questions. We're going to go ahead and um, go this week, you guys. Thank you so much for being part of this week's roundtable. And um, thank you to John and Hannah for answering questions from our listeners. And we're going to continue the conversation next week. So, are you guys ready to be part of it? Oh,
3: for sure.
2: Absolutely. Looking forward to more of your questions, guys.
3: All right. Cold day in a London cab, her phone wins. I can tell the news is bad before the first tear falls, no one wants the sorrow a call like this brings, sorrow doesn't get the last word after all. of an eye, everything can change, we try to find a reason why it all fell apart, but his word is a light of hope and it'll never fade, he's calling out to every broken heart.
0: Folks, we are here this week with our culture segment, and I am very privileged uh, to introduce to you David Mathis. Uh, David, welcome to The Boundless Show.
4: Thank you, Lisa. It's an honor to be here with you.
0: Well, this is uh, very fun for us as well, and you probably heard me talking before about how we've been doing several of these events where we give our listeners the opportunity to actually be part of the interview, listen in live as we bring it to tape, and then even ask their questions in real time and uh, in person as well. So we'll be coming to that uh, in the second part of our recording. So, But uh, David is a pastor. He's an author, a speaker, an editor. He actually serves as pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he has been since 2015 Is one of the primary teachers there and a community group leader. He's also executive editor at DesiringGod.org, and we have highlighted many of the Desiring God pieces on our own boundless website over the years, and just always great content, great insight from the folks there. He's married, with four kids, and uh, has written some other uh, books as well. But today we're going to be talking to him about his book, Humbled: Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. So, uh, David, it's really our privilege to to have you here. So this is Thanks. funny. This is kind of one of those uh, topics where you're like, let's talk about humility and you know, X, Y, Z person, listen in because you need this. And (laughs) we we can all think of the other people in our lives that need this, but for ourselves to uh listen intently and learn from it is, is something we all need to do as well. And so I kind of want to jump right in because we're going to have a conversation here uh, and then follow up next week with Q&A from folks related to the content. And so let's just start with the basics here. I would love for you to define the word humble for us. Uh, if someone asked you to define it, what would you actually say as your elevator speech?
4: Well, my favorite thing to do in moving toward a definition humility is to go to the bible's first mention of humility and try to start getting our bearings there uh the first mention is in the book of exodus and it is moses before pharaoh and moses has warned him moses has said let the people go in exodus five pharaoh has said who is who is this god who's yahweh that i should obey his voice mark that And one plague after another unfolds where Yahweh shows himself. God shows himself in judgment to Pharaoh. And after the seventh plague, Moses comes back and says, why have you continued to exalt yourself? Why have you not humbled yourself? There's the the first mention of humility there during the plagues in Egypt. And basically, uh, the sense there is to Pharaoh who purports to be God in Egypt, you are not God. Yahweh, the Old Testament covenantal name for God. God is God, and you are a creature. He's Creator, and to humble yourself before Him here would be to say, "He is God. Yahweh is God, and I, Pharaoh, am not God." And I'm happy about that. That would be that would be what it mean to humble Himself. So, at at the heart of humility is an acknowledgement in us, in the creature, that we are not God, but that God is God, and that we embrace that. We welcome that. We're, we're glad about that. And humility, the virtue is, uh, means that that mentality, that mindset, that, that moment of humbling ourselves before God has been habituated in us. So somebody who's living in humility is living in a state of having been humbled by God, having received that, having embraced that, having pressed that into the fabric of their soul. So those various humblings have been received in a creaturely and a christian way and that then begins to take expression in their life that we call humility
0: yeah that's good and and you actually just uh kind of anticipated what i was going to ask the the expression of it but i love how you also say because i think this could be confusing to people so we might have to explain this a bit uh, you actually talk in the book about how being humble is actually not something that we can do by ourselves in our own power. And I think a lot of people would assume we can. The whole idea of like, I need to make myself humble or I need to um, perform <laughs> humility in a sense. I mean, we know that scripture says, you know, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and, and he will lift you up. So can you just explain the nuance of that about when you're saying we can't do it by ourselves, what does it look like to, um, to get help in that regard?
4: I mean, m- most Christians are very aware that you know, pride is evil. Humility is good. We, we, we should be humble. And so Zephaniah 2.3 says, seek humility. Colossians 3.12, put on humility. First Peter 3, eight, have a humble mind. First Peter 5.5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility to one another, for God opposes the proud because grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, James 4.10. So over and over again, the scriptures tell us, don't be prideful be humble. And so it's a, it's a good instinct to want to be humble. And then it's a very American thing to think that we can just go about that ourselves and get it done. <laughs> and this was the first big discovery for me in, in taking the study. And uh, and it was humbling for me. I thought if I traced down this language out the Bible of, how to humble yourself, humbling yourself, they humbled themselves, you humble yourselves, we humbled ourselves, all that humble self language through the Bible. I thought, oh, I can, I can learn from that humble self language what I can do to humble myself. And the first lesson throughout it is that God strikingly takes the initiative in our humbling. There is a question that comes to us about humbling ourselves, but it's not a question that we first ask. So first... God breaks into our life with some uncomfortable providence that humbles us. God takes the initiative in the true humbling of his people. Again and again, God acts first. And then the question comes, okay, now will you humble yourself? Whether it's Pharaoh, I've humbled you with these plagues. Now, Pharaoh, will you receive it? You have been humbled. Will you embrace the humbling? Will you humble yourself? Or if it's, King Josiah or King Manasseh uh, or Jesus himself in his human life. God does the humbling through his providence. And the question comes now, will you humble yourself? Will you receive it? Will you embrace it? And so I think the the first lesson, the first thing we want to talk about related to humbling ourselves is we want to pray and seek a kind of posture of soul uh, so that in those moments of being humbled, We are ready to receive it, embrace it, and humble ourselves before God.
0: Yeah. And that's good because I think a lot of us will, and again, this is usually when we're pointing the finger at other people, will immediately call out a false humility. Or you know, sometimes we talk about it culturally as the humble brag, or the mm-hmm. you know, uh, even in job interviews, you're encouraged to like take your weaknesses and make them a strength. And I think it's like culture is working against us in this. So what does it look like? I mean, this is stuff that is largely done in secret. We're not going to sit around and and put on our social pages, hey. Hey, you know today i'm working on humility so let me tell you all about it um so is there like a is there a way that we could we could see you know even even for our own self i mean that sounds ridiculous to say it but to say hey this is an area i'm growing in and i'm actually seeing god bear some fruit in this area of my life yeah i uh i think
4: mean, it's just it's going to happen in real life
3: mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> and, and and we got to get outside you know social media, you know, as if, you know, if a tree falls in the woods, you know, it doesn't make any noise if it wasn't tweeted about, you know, Mm -hmm. so I mean, the humbling mainly talking about is the pain God brings into our life. Mm -hmm. Like you lose a relationship. You thought this was the person you were going to marry and he or she begins to think differently and ends the relationship, or you have a parent or brother or sister with cancer. Or you get that you, – you lose a friendship because you got some different view now on a cultural flashpoint that all of a sudden is a big deal that nobody even thought about two years ago. So I, I, I'm talking talking mainly about the, the things that are very personal in our lives. I mean there there's a layer of humbling that happens for… In the news, we're we're in the news. We're hearing people being humbled all the time. This person's being humbling. There's lessons to learn from that, from people far away, humblings far away, from the humbling of uh, the United States or China or Italy or Brazil as COVID sweeps through or as people march in Washington and breach the Capitol to protest election results, all sorts of national humblings. But that's so big. It's so distant. It's mainly far away. I'm talking Much more about uh, typically the pains in our life that are most strikingly humbling, that really get at us to the core, are often those private things that just a few people know about, the kind of pain that we're going through. And those are often the life-changing obstacles and those kinds of losses of life or losses of relationships or exposures of sin. And uh, the biblical pattern is for in those moments, in our sin, we're going to want to kick against that. We're going to want to thumb our fist at God, thumb our nose at God and, you know, hold our fist to God and, and uh, you know, have a lament, you know, about, about how – and, and cultivate anger against God. That is – that's not mainly what we're talking about here. We're talking about cultivating a posture of soul so that when God confronts our lives with difficult providence, we look for his hand and we're ready to go to our knees and are ready to say – Got to humble myself before you. I receive this painful loss. I receive this suffering, not in a way that doesn't want to be freed from it, uh, but says I receive your sovereignty and providence, and I want to embrace that. You are God. I am not, and I'm ready to receive that uncomfortable work.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because we we so often talk about that in the context of the church, for example, where you know fellow believers, you know, we are to be open to whether it's a sharpening or whether it's a rebuke or, you know, we see church discipline and, and the, the pattern of that. But really, God himself can do the humbling. And sometimes it'll be a, a um, you know, const- well, it's always constructive, but it'll be that gentle humbling of, of correction or circumstances. Um, but there are often times where people are, you know, we've heard it said, um, you know, humble yourself or or God is going to humble you. And sometimes it's done uh, very strongly. We see, in fact, you even paint the picture of King Josiah um, needing to respond with humility when when he was confronted. Um, I think of Matthew 23, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, talk a little bit about that, about when when God just really needs to step in and be like, you know what, uh, this, now it's time to take no prisoners. I'm going to accomplish this <laughs> in my way. Uh, what's a way to recognize that in your own life? Mm-hmm.
4: One sense is uh, what pains, what frustrations, what disappointments stop you in your tracks? You know what I mean? hmm. uh, under God's sovereign hand, these aren't accidents. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
4: um, they, it may very well be the result of someone else's sin against you, it may very well be the result of your own sin. It may be a natural event that is not traceable to any particular sin for you or somebody else in your life, and it's God's uh, hand of of bringing you to a, a screeching halt. But I think it, those are the kind of instances I'm talking about, and uh, in acknowledging that God's the one who takes the initiative and does the main work in humbling, and our part is to receive his work, to embrace it, not kick against it but receive it, there are – some actions that we can take to prepare ourselves for those moments. So that's a big a big part of what I want to do in the book. And the second big lesson, so the first big lesson would be, we don't just up and do it. You don't humble yourself by your own bootstraps. But the second lesson is, there are some things we can do to prepare our souls for God's humbling hand, to make ready now for his humbling hand, not if it descends, but when it descends. Mm-hmm. And I would guess all of us listening to this already have uh, coming to mind many moments where we have been humbled by some difficulty in our lives and more are coming. And there are, I believe, some practices that we can undertake to have ourselves ready.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting that you say that because I would say everyone listening right now has before assumed, you know, we're going to have to change our perspective here, but that humbling is always a bad thing. You know, if if mm. you're if you're humbled by God, that's sorry your number was called. That's bad. You know, bad day for you. But it's actually a a gift and a blessing uh, that will reap its own fruit in our lives. Um, let's talk a little bit about because I think you were kind of starting to go here. Uh, the whole idea of you know, hearing from God. And we know that the psalmist talks about this a lot, about, you know, sitting, uh, listening intently, looking to our maker, looking to the shepherd. Um, And you're saying it's critically important for us to listen to God's voice. So how do we start practicing that in our daily lives in a way that is receptive to uh, what he's going to, how he's going to shape us?
4: yeah Lisa, so if you know if the if the first part is what we cannot do, you know God takes the first step, and the second part is there are some things that we we can do to have ourselves ready for when God takes that initiative of humbling us. The first thing I would point to is uh how we orient on God's voice on his word uh, when you open a Bible, <laughs> how do you take it in? when you hear a preacher, how do you take it in when somebody uh, in your life speaks to you a verse from scripture or paraphrase or application of some biblical or scriptural truth. How do you receive that? How do you receive God's authority from outside yourself coming onto your soul through word? And so uh, first and foremost is do we welcome his word? And there's a daily opportunity to work on welcoming his word in coming before his word, open in the book, reading the Bible, meditating on the Bible. There's a a weekly opportunity to humble ourselves before his word and habituate our souls to hearing his word as to sit under faithful preaching. And so uh, I think first and foremost of the things that we can do, practices we can take, habits we can build in our lives to get ourselves ready for God's humbling hand is what do we do with his word? Do we ignore it? Do we uh, try to dialogue with it and push back against it and improve upon it? Or do we sit humbly under it? Do we receive it as the word of our creator? And I confess he's creator and I'm not. He's wise in a way that I'm not. And he's God and I'm not. And I want to receive his word as a servant, as a creature.
0: Mm-hmm. So how in light of that, uh, David, where you're talking about receiving that from outside sources, how do we make sure, how do we you know, find that true with scripture and make sure we're not uh, being asked to receive something from false sources or someone who is trying to, to prey on us or to shame us or to bring up, uh, our past and our sinfulness, which all of us could acknowledge. How do we ensure that really our true North is, is God himself in this?
4: We've got to know his word. Mm -hmm. Um, there's no, there's no shortcut to it other than, than knowing the scriptures. And, uh, in some, in some respects, in the New Testament's a pretty small book, but the whole Bible, it kind of starts to feel like a big book. And uh, th- there's plenty of Bible for us to discover, learn, saturate ourselves, grow in for a lifetime. God has made sure that, that uh, even the best minds in the world will not run out of fresh terrain to go deeper in and explore more and discover more in the Bible. And we all know some very simple key truths in being in church groups that are faithful to God's word, sitting under preaching. This is the reason why, uh, daily feeding on God's word and why sitting under faithful preaching is important in our lives to the degree that we're shaped by his word. Then we're ready to know what voices resonate with his words and what's foreign, you know, what sounds serpentine versus what sounds like the voice of Jesus. And so uh, in habituating ourselves to God's word, we're more and more ready to be able to receive from a brother or sister who try to speak in whether the word they have to speak is is resonant, whether we're hearing from God in that or it's just a another
0: voice. Yeah, sure thing. Well, in our last couple minutes here, I would love for you to address, because I think uh, this is, you know, I'm sure the elephant in the room, for those who are listening, of all the people in the world that we would assume would have to have nothing to do with humility, it would be Jesus. Um, because, you know, when you're, when you're it, uh, you can just kind of be it. But he clearly modeled humility for us in in humbling himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Talk about why that's so important for us to understand in terms of the Son of God uh, being the person who, you know, walked in humility and, and was that person. Well, uh, one thing, it has a lot to say about our own humanity. So uh, the way
4: Paul celebrates, is this is the greatest self-humbling in the Bible. This is Philippians chapter 2, speaking about Jesus, the God-man, he humbled himself. Philippians chapter two, verse eight, this is the greatest humbling, the greatest man who ever lived, Mm
1: -hmm. Jesus
4: Christ. He humbled himself. So first and foremost, God himself, the eternal second person had to become human to humble himself. So as God, there's not self humbling. I mean, humility owns a proper posture before the creator himself. So humility is a, you would call a creaturely virtue it is a it's a it's a proper stance of a creature toward god so the eternal second person of the trinity did not have humility proper to him as god humility became an opportunity when he became man so the way paul says it in philippians 2 is that jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant so emptying is the verb that he uses to talk about becoming human and then being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what this, um, what encourages for us and confirms for us is that to be a creature for Jesus, for God to become man in Jesus is to, to have humility, be a, a proper posture of our humanity. As you were referring to early, earlier, Lisa, it's not as if we become less than human when we become humble we in the moments that we're humbled. In fact, as we become more humble, we become all the more human. I mean, he, he, it's not an accident that human and humility begin with that H-U-M root, which comes from earth, dust, that, that humanity was made by God from the earth, from the dust, and that to be humbled is to own that humanity, that, that, that we are earth. We are dust before our creator. And so Jesus himself as fully god, fully man, he humbles himself and obeys. And it's it's not subhuman to obey God. Obedience, I know, obedience has such a bad rap <laughs> these days, right? Uh, but obedience before our lord from a servant is a very good thing, it's a very appropriate thing. It's a very human thing. So, first and foremost with Jesus in his humbling of himself, we see his nearness to us in his humanity. We see the dignity of our humanity, that being humbled doesn't necessarily mean we have sinned. It may come from our sin. Often it does. Our sin plays a part in our humbling. But there are times, too, where our sin has nothing to do with our humbling. We're not being humbled because we're sinners. We're being humbled because we're human, and it's part of God's love for us in drawing us closer to himself. And what we see in the humility of Jesus is a humbling of himself that is not just like us, but is for us. It is the greatest humbling because in his humbling, he has no sin, no guilt of his own, and he offers himself in our place to forgive the sin that is ours, to take the omnipotent justice of God that was coming against us because of our sin and redirect it from us. And so in Jesus, we have not only humanity confirmed, but also the gospel. We see the good news of what God Himself in the person of His Son, taking on full humanity, has done in our place that we could not have done for ourselves.
0: Yeah, so good. Well, and next week, uh, we're going to have you back uh, with folks actually being able to ask uh, specific questions about like, okay, this week, David, what in the world am I doing about humility? Um, So we're going to take it to a very practical level. In the meantime, everyone uh, know that David's book titled Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God is available this week and next from Boundless for a gift of any amount to the ministry that we do here. So uh, in fact, if you just go Go to Boundless.org. You can search for 738. That's this week's episode. You'll see the book cover there. Click on it. Uh, You just give a donation, whatever you can afford to Boundless, and we will send a copy of David's book to you as our thank you. And so uh, that's just a fun thing that we get to do here to make sure that we get his book in your hands. So, David, are you willing to come back next week for
3: folks' questions? Sounds great. All right. We'll do it. 24 hours rushing past to get caught up and I move too fast Another day is spent Working hard to keep my pace Trying to win the human race But somehow I forget That you're in control Of all this mess You got the whole world In your hands Got the whole world Trust your plans You've got the whole world In your hands It's the hardest thing It's a constant fight In a world that moves At the speed of life To slow the chaos down Slowing on down Is the only way I'll ever hear What you have to say I need to hear you now because you've got all of this figured out you've got the whole world in your hands got the whole wide world in your hands And every little thing is under your command so I will trust your plans you've got the whole
0: We are opening up our inbox, as we do at the end of every show, and this week I get the chance to answer the question from one of you, our listeners, and uh, I will go ahead and read the question and then take a stab at uh, giving some advice off of it. So here we go. Our listener says, should I consider going on a date with someone I have chemistry with, but who is not a Christian? I recently met a guy online who is nominally Catholic. I'm very aware that missionary dating is a risky move, but is it wrong to take steps of faith with a person who may meet Christ in the future? Can I date someone who isn't saved yet, but is showing fruit?" Okay. Well, thanks so much for writing in with this question. Um, This is a really good one because it kind of trends into like, well, you know, but what if, and what do I trust God in, in the midst of all this? And so um, just really great that you're asking this question, thinking it through. And obviously you kind of already put it out there that, you know, this is kind of a risky thing. And so it's good to get some good, um, solid advice on this. So um. Okay, let me go ahead and start by throwing out a couple scriptures, because you're going to hear um, from people, the minute you say a question like this, everyone's going to bring out the passage from 2 Corinthians 6.14, which talks about being unequally yoked with unbelievers. And usually this passage refers to... Um, basically being unequally yoked in a position of idolatry. And sometimes folks uh, extrapolate that to like unequally yoked even in business propositions. So we don't know that it was necessarily meant in terms of marriage, but the principles still apply. Because if you think of a yoke on oxen, for example... This is where a team is actually pulling in the same direction. So you can see the application in a relationship where if you have someone who claims Christ and has allegiance to Christ and someone who doesn't, naturally their allegiances are going to be in different places and they're going to have a hard time pulling in that same direction. I actually also like talking through the passage from Matthew, Matthew 6, 24, um, that basically refers to our inability to serve two masters. Now in this passage, it's actually talking about, or it refers to in an ancillary fashion, money. But also look at the application here. Uh, It says you are either going to hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. So think of this uh, in terms of marrying an unbeliever. You know, you you claim, uh, as a believer, We all should claim as believers that Christ, uh, God, and his kingdom are our priority, and the true believer, that is certainly the case. But then in marriage, we have a person here who, if they're not claiming Christ as their priority, they will probably claim, say, you as their priority. And you are either going to be stuck in the position of choosing Christ or your spouse, Or if you choose Christ, your spouse is going to be very offended because if their allegiance is not to Christ, they're like, why are you putting me second? So you can see again, it almost kind of tandems the unequally yoked situation there. But I think the biggest argument um, for looking at this very seriously and choosing not to date someone who's an unbeliever and not even go there is based on the definition of marriage and the purpose of dating, you know, to move towards marriage. And so uh, clearly we see throughout Scripture that marriage is defined as the process of becoming one flesh and having that union of one flesh. Also, it's a picture of Christ and his church in covenant and perfect communion, and we can easily extrapolate from this that, you know, being unequally yoked with someone, marrying someone who doesn't consider Christ in their priorities or whatever, is not going to produce perfect communion. So, um, for example, just practically, I've seen this play out. A good friend of mine uh, married a guy who was an unbeliever, and I'm saying like legitimately, I'm not saying like unbelieving guys are jerks and you're going to have a horrible marriage. I actually have a uh, a friend who married a guy, a Christian guy, who actually ended up leaving her. And so she thought like, what's the use? So her second husband, she married a guy who wasn't a believer, who's actually a good guy, but she's still seeing the tension in her marriage and a lot of problems crop up again because of those unresolved priorities. Um, Another one of my friends married an unbeliever. And she will say now she just clearly kind of defied God and was like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Well, her husband in terms of her faith started out pretty ambivalent towards her faith. And she was just kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to do my own thing. Well, now over the years, he's actually become hostile to her faith, where it is an ongoing battle for her going to church on Sunday. You think where this goes, uh, as far as like they have now have kids, and uh, he has very much objected to her bringing them to church, to her raising them in the faith, Um, even money, you know, her desire to tithe and give to Christian charities. He's very much against that. So again, uh, practically speaking, as well as scripturally speaking, I would say there is no... Um, no benefit to marrying someone who does not claim Christ. So what do we do? We basically have to trust God with our future, and not think that this guy that you're talking to online is your last chance, or that this is like the only thing you're going to be offered, or whatever. And it's hard to do that because we want to believe that uh, someone is there for us. And and what does this look like? So, um, just one little caveat I want to give. Um, you know, first of all, you said in that last statement, um, someone who isn't saved yet but is showing fruit, and I'm gonna, you know, not to like discredit what you're saying here, but only a believer will evidence fruit because fruit only comes from being plugged into the vine of Jesus Christ. So don't think that um, non-believers are going to be producing fruit. They may be nice people, but they won't be truly fruit uh, producing. I would also encourage you as you're online to maybe go back and revamp your parameters around who you're looking for, because I fell into this trap. I was chatting with unbelievers I was chatting with nominal believers all these people and it's just a waste of my time okay so um, I would go back really solidify your non-negotiables decide what you're looking for and only spend your time chatting intentionally with that type of guy Um, be prayerful throughout the whole process trust God in it know that he has good things for you Uh, those of us um, you know he, he blesses obedience in this space and so just be willing to wait be willing to be encouraged in this process because he has good things for you all right well hopefully that encourages you and gives you some things to think about and hopefully a couple steps maybe to take in the right direction Um, but you know again we too uh, love to root for and pray for you here at boundless and we will do just that all right, folks. Well, that's it for this week's show. We do want to hear from you, so write to us at editor at boundless.org, even if it's a tough issue like this one that we just talked about. So, um, and again, those of you in our community, pray for one another because we're all facing hard choices, hard decisions, hard life things that we have to walk through. Well, in the meantime, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show.
3: The Boundless Show is a production of boundless.org. Focus on the family.